Thank you all for coming. I'd like to welcome everyone in the room and those watching remotely to the Norris Cotton Cancer Center Grand Rounds, today featuring one of our third-year fellows who um, I will introduce in a moment and report now that she does not have any financial interests. She does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device and she's not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. I welcome you to uh, hear Dr. Erica Bernhardt, and I also would like to welcome special guests who are um, some of the PEM students who are taking a class in clinical oncology this spring and rotating through our clinics, and Dr. Catherine Kagania, who is observing with us this month from the Butaro Cancer Center of Excellence in Rwanda, and her trip is funded by Norris Cotton Cancer Center. So Dr. Bernhardt is one of two of our third year hematology oncology fellows graduating this spring. She came to us in 2016 from the Indiana University School of Medicine where she went to medical school and completed her residency in internal medicine after having studied business at the University of Evansville. From the very beginning of her fellowship, she's what I think of as a jumper inner. She jumped into our molecular tumor board and started collecting data on the impact of this service on patient care, resulting in multiple publications and abstracts. She jumped into an opportunity to work with Dr. Peter Kaufman and others on a study evaluating near-infrared spectral tomography correlates with residual cancer burden for prognostic assessment subsequent to neoadjuvant chemotherapy in breast cancer which is now in abstract form and will be presented at ASCO in June. And she jumped in on this opportunity to work with Dr. Judy Reese on the project you'll hear more about today. Dr. Bernhardt is a very calm, cool, and collected, thoughtful, and thorough clinician and scientist who jumps in and gets the work done efficiently, seamlessly, and with a keen analytical eye. We hope she will continue her excellent work with clinical research and academics as she moves on to her next adventure as faculty for the Breast Oncology Department at the University of Colorado Health in Fort Collins, Colorado. We wish her well, and without further ado, please welcome Dr. Erica Bernhardt. All right, thank you all for coming today. Um, first, just wanted to start with my disclosure statement, as Dr. Chamberlain had pointed out. I have no financial disclosures and, or interest in any of the commercial tests to be discussed today. I do not intend to discuss off-label products or devices, and I can attest that I am not receiving any payments from a commercial entity with respect to today's discussion. So for our learning objectives, Today, we will discuss appropriate situations for multi-gene testing in breast cancer. We'll learn about the different tools that we can use for multi-gene testing. Okay. I saw this, but is this better? Yeah. Um, and then we're going to determine how the results of multi-gene testing affect the patient's prognosis and treatment. Finally, to finish the talk, we will review an internal research project assessing patterns of multi-gene testing in seven CDC National Program of Cancer Registry states 
to determine disparities and opportunities for advancing standardized patient care. First, to discuss a little bit about breast cancer in general, this is the 2017 data for the 12 most common male and female cancers in the United States. As you can see, breast cancer is the most common, followed by lung, prostate, and then colon. And this is the estimated mortality data for the top eight deadliest cancers uh, in the United States, again for 2017. As you can see in this chart, breast cancer is the fourth leading cause of death for both men and women. And if you take out men and only look at the right side of the chart, you can see that breast cancer is actually the second leading cause of death for women with approximately 40,000 deaths estimated for the year 2017. However, this indicates that a significant portion of breast cancer is diagnosed and treated early at an early stage, thus reducing the mortality in comparison to the incidence. And here's the incidence and mortality side by side in pie graph form, showing that breast cancer in the dark blue will make up an estimated 15% of new cancer diagnoses and only 7% of cancer deaths in 2017. The treatment for early stage breast cancer is multimodal, and we had a great talk last week talking about the surgical management of breast cancer. Uh, patients typically present with a palpable lump or abnormal findings on screening mammography. Patients will undergo biopsy and imaging to establish the diagnosis and to determine the extent of disease. Surgery will be utilized to remove the cancer, and depending on the extent of the disease, this may include lumpectomy, mastectomy, sentinel lymph node biopsy, or lymph node dissection. Radiation therapy is typically used to reduce the risk of local recurrence, depending on the surgical technique utilized, as well as the lymph node status. Finally, chemotherapy and or hormonal therapy or targeted therapy may be used to reduce the risk of recurrent metastatic disease. Despite the use of multimodal therapies, we know that some patients will recur. Our goal as oncologists is to minimize the risk while also balancing the toxic effects of chemotherapy. This graph is from a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2010 which followed over 1,600 patients for a 10-year period to determine the hazard rate for distance recurrence. As you can see from this graph, triple negative breast cancers, as indicated in the blue line, were more likely to recur in the first few years after treatment. Non-triple negative breast cancers, on the other hand, were found to have a low but consistent rate of recurrence over the 10-year period. This is a basic overview of how we treat breast cancer um, based on tumor biology. For estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor positive disease, we use hormonal therapy plus or minus adjuvant chemotherapy. For HER2 positive disease, we use anti-HER2 directed therapy and chemotherapy. Finally, for triple negative disease, since there are no specific targets, chemotherapy is the only choice for systemic treatment. When balancing the risk and benefit of chemotherapy, it's important to distinguish between prognostic and predictive markers. Examples of prognostic markers include primary tumor size, the number of positive nodes, 
ERPR status as per the previous slide with a lower risk of recurrence in the first five years as compared to ERPR negative tumors, and finally HER2 status. However, we also have markers that can predict response to treatments. For instance, ERPR positive disease predicts response to hormonal, hormonal therapy, as does the degree of hormonal positivity. HER2 positive disease has historically been a poor prognostic marker. However, it is also predictive of response to anti-HER2 therapy. As our HER2-directed treatments have improved over time, so has the prognosis of this biology. Finally, we have multi-gene testing to predict benefit to chemotherapy, which will be the focus of the remainder of this discussion. have been developed with the hope of determining which patients are most likely to benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy. The most popular of these tests is the Oncotype DX, which is the brand name for the 21-gene recurrence score. This test was developed in 2004, and it was incorporated into the NCCN guidelines in 2008. Because it's the oldest and the most popular test, the majority of the talk today will center around the use of the Oncotype and how this information can guide the use of adjuvant chemotherapy. However, I also wanted to briefly discuss some of the other tests that are commercially available. The MammaPrint um, is the 70 gene panel, and it's a test that looks at the activity, as you would think, of 70 genes that then calculates a recurrent score that is either high or low risk. Thus, a selling point to this test is that there's no intermediate group as there is for the Oncotype. This test was FDA approved in 2007 for women of all ages with stage one or two invasive breast cancer, tumor size less than five centimeters, lymph node negative disease, estrogen receptor positive or negative, and HER2 positive or negative disease. The ProSigna assay looks at the activity of 58 genes to estimate the, the risk of distant recurrence of hormone receptor positive breast cancer at 10 years. This assumes treatment with hormonal-based therapy for at least five years. Based on these activity levels, ProSigna assay results are reported on a scale of zero to 100 in two ways. First, no negative cancers have three categories. The first is low risk, second intermediate, and last high risk. And then finally, node positive cancers are classified as either low risk or high risk based on their scale. The Indopredict test analyzes activity of 12 genes in breast cancer, and, it's estimate, and it estimates the risk of distant recurrence at 10 years. The Indopredict test also includes some pathologic features, such as the size of the cancer, lymph node status, um, and other pathologic fe features in calculating the risk score. The score is then given on a scale of 1.1 to 6.2, and a score of 3.3 or lower is considered low risk. <coughs> Finally, the Breast Cancer Index analyzes the activity of seven, seven genes to help predict the risk of node-negative, hormone-receptor-positive breast cancer coming back five to 10 years after diagnosis. The test can help decide if extending hormonal therapy 
for more than five years or for a total of 10 years would be beneficial to the patient. The Breast Cancer Index reports two scores, how likely the cancer is to recur at 10 years after diagnosis and how likely a woman is to benefit from taking hormonal therapy for a total of 10 years. However, this test is yet to be FDA approved. So for the remainder of the talk, I'm going to focus on the Oncotype DX, or the 21 gene recurrence score. Um, as stated before, it's by far the wide, most widely used. There are 21 genes um, that were selected in this test and found to correlate with the likelihood of distant recurrence from the original article published in 2004 in the New England Journal of Medicine. In this article, they used patients with node-negative tamoxifen-treated breast cancer who were previously enrolled in the clinical trial NSABP-B14. Adequate RT-PCR profiles were obtained in 668 of the 675 banked tumor blocks. The levels of expression of 16 cancer-related genes and five reference genes were used in a prospectively defined algorithm to calculate a recurrence score and to determine a risk group, low, intermediate, or high for each patient. The score is individualized from 1 to 100. A low recurrent score was defined as less than 18. Intermediate was 18 to 30. And high risk was defined as 31 or greater. You can see in table 1 to the right, the majority of patients, 51%, did fall into the low risk category. And that this correlated with a low rate of distant recurrence at 10 years of approximately 6.8%. The risk of dissident recurrence increased to 14% in the intermediate group and then 30% in the high-risk group. And so this validated that the Oncotype DX was a good prognostic test. It accurately predicted um, who were likely to have relapse disease when treated alone with hormonal therapy. What the study didn't show was if patients with a higher recurrence score would derive any benefit from the addition of chemotherapy. <clears throat> Two years later, a second article was published using similar data, this time from NSABP-B20. In this study, the recurrence score was again measured from bank tumor tissue. Um, Cox hazard modules were utilized to test for the interaction between chemotherapy treatment and the recurrence score. A total of 651 patients' tumors were accessible. 227 had been randomly assigned in the NSABPB20 study to receive tamoxifen alone, and 424 were randomly assigned to tamoxifen plus CMF chemotherapy. The test for interaction between chemotherapy treatment and the recurrent score was found to be statistically significant. And here are the results in graphical form. In this panel, we see the Kaplan-Meier curves for distant recurrence comparing treatment with tamoxifen alone. That's the red dotted line versus treatment with tamoxifen plus chemotherapy shown in the blue solid line. Graph A in the upper left-hand corner includes all patients, and you can see there's only a slight difference or benefit to chemotherapy. Graph B is in the upper right-hand corner, and is the low-risk patient group defined as an oncotype score, recurrent score of less than 18. 
Again, you can see that there is no real difference or absolute benefit to chemotherapy in this group. <coughs> Graph C is the intermediate risk group with a recurrent score of 18 to 30. And finally, panel D in the bottom right-hand corner is the high-risk group or a recurrent score of greater than 30. You can see a clear benefit to chemotherapy in this group, indicating that the Oncotype score is not only prognostic, but it's also predictive as to who will derive an absolute benefit to chemotherapy. There was a second trial in 2010, also evaluating the predictive ability of the Oncotype recurrence score. This phase three trial included postmenopausal women, this time with ER positive and node positive disease. Patients were randomized to receive tamoxifen plus minus CAF chemotherapy. By a similar technique, the authors were able to retrospectively analyze 367 banked tumor specimens. They were then able to assess if the effect on the recurrence score and breast cancer-related events by treatment group. And what you see in comparing those with one to three positive lymph nodes, um, so that's the yellow line compared to the black line, and again, um, with four or greater positive lymph nodes, as depicted by comparing the red line to the blue line, is that as the recurrent score increased, so did the benefit to chemotherapy. Now, here is the first page of a sample patient's recurrent score report. This patient has a low recurrent score of 10, which correlates to a 7% chance of distant recurrence at 10 years. This is assuming that the patient will be treated with tamoxifen for at least five years. Thus, the first page of this report is considered prognostic. The second page of the report predicts the benefit of adding chemotherapy to tamoxifen. And you can see as the recurrence score increases, so does the separation of the two lines measuring 10-year risk of distant recurrence thus again indicating an increased absolute benefit to chemotherapy as the recurrent score increases. The third page of the report provides quantitative ER, PR, and HER2 scores by RT-PCR. These are among the 21 genes used to generate the breast recurrent score result, as I had showed you on a previous slide. As stated earlier, the 21-gene RT-PCR assay or recurrent score was developed in 2004, and then it was incorporated into the NCCN guidelines in 2008. Um, so this is the box that shows you how to use the 21-gene recurrent score to determine who you may or may not give chemotherapy to. As per the Albane et al. Lancet Oncology article that we reviewed, published in 2010, there is a footnote in the guidelines that the, that the recurrent score testing can be considered in select patients with one to three involved ipsilateral axillary lymph nodes. Finally, they indicate that other prognostic multigene assays may be used. However, the data is lacking to, to predict response to chemotherapy. Thus, this has led to an epidemiology project that I've been involved with during my fellowship here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. We used CDC data to assess how clinicians were using the NCCN guidelines and multi-gene testing in the treatment of breast cancer. 
We presented our preliminary data at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium this December. Okay. Our data came from the SEER program under the National Program of Cancer Registries at the CDC. The SEER program includes 10 state cancer registries, Alaska, California, Colorado, Florida, Idaho, Louisiana, North Carolina, Rhode Island, Texas, and then also New Hampshire. In these states, enhanced registry data was collected for cancers diagnosed during the year 2011. This expanded patient database included um, information such as height and weight, comorbid conditions, smoking status, area-based socioeconomic status, the stage of disease, ER, PR, and HER2 status, a detailed first course of cancer-directed treatment, and multi-gene signature testing. Uh, for our methods, Florida, California, and Texas were excluded because they had high rates of missing data. The remaining seven state registries were analyzed. North Carolina and Louisiana also had high proportions of missing data. Um, so we planned sens sensitivity analyses comparing the results with and without these states. And the remaining states had less than 20% missing data. We reviewed the NCCN guidelines for 2011 um, to identify the recommended NGT testing at that time and resultant treatment strategies. Descriptive statistics were calculated overall and for specific subgroups. Chi-square analyses were used to assess differences. There were a total of 21,465 cases examined. From the pie chart to the left, you can see that the majority of cases came from North Carolina, Colorado, and Louisiana. In the pie chart to the right, you can see that the vast majority of cases um, were where Oncotype TX was the preferred multi-gene test utilized, and that was in approximately 96% of cases. Table 1 examines characteristics of women with invasive breast cancer who were tested versus those who were not tested. It does not take into account if they were appropriately tested as per the NCCN guidelines. So we did see several trends. Women in the 50 to 59 year age range were more likely to be tested, while women age 70 or greater were less likely to be tested. Black women were less likely to be tested when compared to other ethnicities. However, we also know that black women are more likely to be diagnosed with triple negative disease in which at least oncotype testing is not indicated. Finally, those who lived in urban residencies were also less likely to be tested. Uh, this is an extension of the first table. Well, we also found that a low education level and a low income level were associated with a trend towards less testing. Finally, those with a private payer source were more likely to be tested as compared to Medicare, Medicaid, or those without a payer source. So that's it. Of all those where Oncotype was indicated, only 34.3% underwent testing, 
46.4% did not undergo testing, and the data was missing for approximately 19%. The Oncotype DX was most likely to be ordered out of the strict 2011 NCCN recommendations in those with N1 positive disease or HER2 positive disease. As discussed earlier, the NCCN panel does include a footnote that the 21 gene recurrence score can be considered in select patients with N1 positive disease. Also, as uh, reviewed earlier, the Oncotype DX report gives results of ER, PR, and HER2 status by RT-PCR testing. And thus, some clinicians may be using this as, additional, as an additional marker for testing HER2 positivity. Uh, many pathologists, on the other hand, uh, test for HER2 either through IHC or FISH. <coughs> Finally, in Table 3, we see that when the Oncotype result was available, we found that chemotherapy was more likely to be given in those with a high recurrence score. Those with a high recurrence score were also more likely to receive anthracycline-based adjuvant chemotherapy. We did not see a significant difference in the incidence or type of chemotherapy given according to race. Here is a bar chart depicting the same data. You can see that as the Oncotype recurrent score increases, physicians were more likely to give adjuvant chemotherapy as depicted by the green bars. When the Oncotype score was low or omitted, clinicians were much less likely to give chemotherapy as, de as depicted by the blue bars. Thus, for our conclusions, we found that multi-gene testing was significantly less likely to be used in those age greater than 69, in black women, in women living in urban or poor neighborhoods, and in less educated patients. Uh, Multi-gene testing was more likely to be utilized in those of younger age as well as those with private insurance. The Oncotype DX was by far the most common multi-gene test ordered. Oncotype DX was most likely to be ordered out of the strict, outside of the strict NCCN recommendations in those with N1 positive disease or HER2 positive disease. Patients with omitted multigene testing or a low recurrence score were less likely to be treated with chemotherapy, and conversely, those with a high recurrence score were much more likely to be treated. So moving forward with the project, we would like to develop several multivariable models. We would like one restricted to those um, for whom Oncotype DX is known to be indicated to find factors associated with appropriate testing. Uh, we plan to develop a second multivariable model restricted to those in whom Oncotype DX is not indicated to further assess which women are getting tested when it's not indicated. And finally, we will develop a third multivariable model analyzing which factors determine if chemotherapy is given. <clears throat> when treating patients in the clinic, a difficult, a difficult decision to be made is what to do when a patient has an intermediate risk recurrence score. It's clear that patients with a low risk of recurrence are unlikely to benefit from chemotherapy, while those with a high risk of recurrence do benefit. 
In our analysis of clinician practice patterns, approximately 41% of patients in this group uh, ended up receiving chemotherapy. There are currently several clinical trials um, investigating what should be done in this intermediate uh, group. The first is the Taylor X trial, which has randomized more than 10,000 women with node negative hormone receptor positive disease across the United States and Canada. They have defined three recurrence risk groups in this study, and those with an intermediate risk of recurrence have been randomized to receive either hormonal therapy alone or hormonal therapy uh, plus chemotherapy. And of note, in this study, they're using a recurrence score of 11 to 25 to, deter to define the intermediate risk group. In September 2015, results were reported from a five-year interim analysis of the women in the lowest risk group for this trial. And the results were very positive. Rates of distant relapse-free survival um, were very good, 99.3%. Invasive disease-free survival was high. Overall survival was 98%. Thus, these interim results, again, prospectively support that the 21-gene recurrence assay identifies women with a low risk of recurrence who can be spared chemotherapy. The interesting data will obviously come from the analysis of the intermediate group. And I did see a recent uh, press release in late March of this year, um, which stated that the Taylor um, X trial had achieved significant information to render a conclusion regarding the effect of chemotherapy in this intermediate risk group. Um, and they indicated that they were going to submit that as a late-breaking abstract in an upcoming um, national meeting. So I would suspect that this, might, this data might be presented um, at ASCO this year. There's also a second trial called the RxPonder trial, which is examining women with hormone receptor positive invasive breast cancer and one to three positive lymph nodes. Those with an oncotype recurrence score of less than 25 are randomized to receive either hormonal therapy alone or combination hormonal therapy plus chemotherapy. Um, and here is a schema of both trials. Panel A shows the Taylor X trial. You can see that they've defined the intermediate group um, as a recurrence score of 11 to 25. Um, and that's the group that, will, that has been randomized to receive hormonal therapy alone versus the combination hormonal therapy plus chemotherapy. Panel B is the Rx-Ponder clinical trial. The main difference is that this includes patients with uh, N1 positive lymph nodes. Um, those with a recurrent score of less than 25 um, have been randomized to receive hormonal therapy alone versus the combination hormonal therapy and chemotherapy. Um, so there is some data that clinicians uh, have already incorporated. Um, the recurrence score with a threshold of 25, um, as per the RxPonder trial, 
into decision-making for higher-risk node-positive disease. Um, this is despite the lack of prospective data from the results which we are currently waiting um, in the RxPonder trial, and also contrary to current NCCN guideline recommendations. So this is a study from the University of Colorado, um, published in April 2017. In this, they examined node-positive early-stage breast cancer cases diagnosed 2010 through 2012. Um, they used the National Cancer Database as well, and they used multivariate regression to estimate um, test use and the impact on chemotherapy recommendations. So um, in this study, the recurrent score assay was ordered 16.5% of the time um, in the 80, over 80,000 cases that they identified. When divided based on the cutoff point of 25, as adopted by the Rx Ponder trial, those with a recurrent score of 18 to 25 had significantly lower odds of receiving chemotherapy as opposed to those with a recurrent score of 26 to 30. They also uh, found that chemotherapy was more likely to be recommended in those patients of younger age with private insurance, higher tumor grade, size, and number of involved lymph nodes. And thus I see many similarities in these statistics and the data that we're currently analyzing in-house. And um, so at the end here, I wanted to just review our learning objectives one final time to summarize what we talked about today. So today we reviewed appropriate situations for multi-gene testing in breast cancer. We discussed tools for testing of which the 21-gene recurrent score oncotype is the most popular, while also providing prognostic and predictive information. We discussed how the recurrent score can be used to determine prognosis and the benefit of adjuvant chemotherapy. And finally, we reviewed our internal research describing patterns of multi-gene testing in seven CDC registry states. And then briefly, we discussed ongoing clinical trials as well as potential future changing practice patterns. Um, thus, here are my references again, um, and I just wanted to take the time to thank the multiple attendings that came today and my co-fellows um, to support me through this talk, and I wanted to thank our program director, Dr. Chamberlain, who was instrumental in hooking me up with this research. Um, so at this time, I welcome any questions or comments from the audience as far as your experience or challenges with implementing um, this predictive testing. So. Yes. Um, so, uh, nice talk and um, interesting topic. The, um, you, you talked about the, your research and looking at patient characteristics that are associated with multi-gene testing. Um, are you aware of a research about of physician characteristics associated with multi-gene testing, which I don't think is part of your database. Mm -hmm. um, because you could argue that these tests are ordered by physicians, and that it may be the physician <coughs> characteristics which are just as important, if not more important, than the patient 
or it's the interaction of those two that results in the ordering of a test like this. And I guess as a follow-up question, is do you think it's over, do you think these tests are overused, underused, or, or appropriately used? What is your assessment of, of that? Um, I'll I, my answer off the air. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think looking at our data and then also um, at this other study from the University of Colorado, I would say it's probably underutilized. Um, Currently, I mean, it's certainly it's already incorporated into the NCCN guidelines for the last 10 years. Um, and I, I think in our data, it was maybe 30% um, of patients that it was actually indicated, but they didn't end up getting the test. Um, so you could argue that maybe for some reason those are patients that they wouldn't be a candidate for treatment, um, or maybe they were going to get treated anyway with chemotherapy, and that's why they didn't get tested. Um, but my feeling is that it's probably underutilized. Um, and yeah, that's an inter interesting point that you um, bring up about physician characteristics that can lead to the testing being done. Certainly I've seen in our clinics that Certain physicians are more likely to order the test than others, and they can even use it in different ways um, at times. Um, so that would be interesting if we could get data to look into that. Okay. Yes, thanks, Erica. Also agree with a good talk. Um, on a related, are you aware of any efforts, um, because implicit in these recommendations, so you have the recommendation, um, the, you know, negative what MCCN said, but it's the also second part is you had a discussion with the patient that you're going, like, they would be open to getting chemotherapy, like, you have to certify that to the insurance company. Um, so, and I, I think that's kind of to know like that number of what's the appropriate percentage of patients who should get this testing depends on those who would be open to having chemotherapy. There will be some number who had some other effect, wouldn't be open to chemotherapy, or by the time you get around to asking them to do the testing, they get too sick where you or, or some other reason you couldn't do it. But I think pairing data like this with some ascertaining whether they've had that documented discussion or their willingness would be helpful. Yeah. And I don't know of any data that looks into, you know, how many patients just flat out reject chemotherapy, um, but that, that data might be out there. It might be, there might be a way to be able to incorporate that into these numbers, but... Oh, yeah. I just got a question on the plot you showed comparing the percent of patients who received chemotherapy of the different risk scores and then those not tested and all patients. And I guess I would have thought those all, all patients or those not tested would have had high rates of chemotherapy, but it seemed like most weren't. Get, maybe I was misinterpreting the graph. It was, no. um, it was f farther back. It was like in the middle of your talk. Okay. Let me see if I can find it. Sorry, yeah. So, because I was. Is this it? No, it was a plot, a bar plot. It was a bar plot? Yeah. <coughs> so, this one? Yeah. So, I guess, Mike, I, I would have expected 
on or not tested to have gotten chemotherapy, right? Or, or is the default to not give chemotherapy and then this test is sort of indicating who should get it? I sort of thought the logic was reversed. So I think that this plot, um, to clarify, was limited to those patients where the test was indicated. Okay, so they had low risk. So they're probably going to be, okay. yeah, smaller tumors, node negative okay. disease. All patients. So right, okay. yeah. So it's, it's not necessarily all comers. Uh, my question is, how much does it cost? And then, you know, when you present this test, is there any patient says, I don't want to get it? Or... <laughs> I don't know the answer to that, how much it costs. <laughs> Over the last 10 years, it's getting yeah. cheaper? Or... Maybe there's a, a breast cancer physician in this room that would address that. And this is something one-time deal at the original diagnosis, right? So, well, I mean, it's not reflex order, you know. So I think some institutions just automatically do it on any tumor bigger than 0.5 if it's ER positive, and so the results are available to the med consultation. Mm -hmm. But here we prefer to have a conversation with patients beforehand to kind of evaluate that. You know, what is the likelihood that I can tell you something that would convince you to have chemo, or vice versa? And um, so we, you know, we don't always get it for that reason. It's whether the test would change what we do. <laughs> so follow up to that question, that answer is, is our practice, you know, more cost effective and our outcomes are as good um, when we take that approach compared to someplace that does reflex testing? Can that be looked at? Yeah. Um, hmm. I don't think we have. I don't think we have the cost data in this CDC information. Um, but there might be an alternate way to assess that. It could also be muddied by the fact that the staging criteria for breast cancer just changed and incorporates alpha into the stage. So I think because of that, a lot of places are probably going to do reflex testing. Maybe us. We haven't really gotten there. But, I mean, it still makes the point that we have a unique opportunity to look. Because we've been practicing this way for years. And uh, is our data going to look any different than, you know, a, a, a reflex testing institution? If it doesn't make a difference, then it just says, well, yeah, we should have these conversations and we can save three to $4,000 for each patient that we can I don't know. I mean, it's just... I think that's kind of the trend, too, with other molecular testing. It seems like some of the bigger institutions are now doing reflex testing and larger panels as well, whether or not that's the right thing to do. I don't know. So, so this covers all grapes, right? Breast cancer. I'm sorry? I don't think the... Uh, recurrent score actually takes the grade into account. There's other um, prognostic models online that do take into account the grade if you're trying to figure out a prognosis. And I'm not sure as to the other 
tests that I briefly talked about, if they take grade into account, probably some of them do, because they do take more pathologic features into account. But the oncotype is just those 21 genes on the, on the panel. So I, I guess my question is, uh, what advantage is this as uh, just looking at histological? Mm. <clears throat> um, well, so the histological grade of the cancer, again, is um, more of a prognostic factor instead of a predictive factor. Um, certainly, if something is higher grade, we typically think about those cancers being more sensitive to chemotherapy. Um, but to my knowledge, there's really not any good data to back that up, per se, just using the... Um, just using the grade in breast cancer. I don't know if anybody else knows of any. There have been a lot of retrospective comparisons of how this grade correlates to the alcohol score. And I think, as you would expect, the intermediate and high grades have the greatest amount of discrepancy. Um, but it's not huge. It's like if it's high grade histologically, then you've got a 15 to 20% chance that it might come back low grade in the alcohol so most of the time it correlates, but there are those few times when it doesn't, and that's the big reason to do that test. Yeah, I can, I can sort of think that if you're looking at high grade, to see if the genetic makeup and aspect might be predicted among high grade. But I think the grade is somewhat predictive as well. It, it is, but it does, it's not, all, it's not always predictive, so it can vary based on the genetic. Well, what is the current situation of uh, uh, this kind of uh, multi-gene test for new adjuvant uh, therapy prediction in breast cancer? And here, what percentage of breast cancer patients will be treated by new adjuvant therapy? By neoadjuvant? Yeah. Okay. Chemotherapy. New adjuvant chemotherapy. Right. Um, so, yeah, to my knowledge, we don't use the oncotype in the neoadjuvant realm. Is that what you're asking? Uh, I think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, adjuvant, correct. And ne so neoadjuvant would be a completely separate talk, and we don't have um, recurrent scores or, or data to, to assess that. But here in, in our uh, uh, center, how, what percentage of breast cancer will be treated by? By neoadjuvant? In the ER positive group or all So in the ER positive group, um, in my experience, it's typically limited to very large tumors where the surgery would be difficult um, because of the size of the tumor. So you're trying to get shrinkage um, to therefore make the surgery easier. Um, in triple negative disease and in HER2 positive disease, it is commonly used, especially, again, with tumors that are a little bit larger, over two centimeters in size. Um, however, triple negative and HER2 positive disease is much less common than um, hormone receptor positive disease. So in my experience, it's actually a pretty small percentage of patients that actually end up undergoing neoadjuvant um, chemotherapy. Would you agree? 
Yeah, I mean, I think most of her two positives and triple negatives are treated in the eye. Don't get the tumors above a certain size, like roughly two centimeters. In the ER positive group, if there's any question, then you would wait and do it after surgery so that you could have the additional method of oncotype testing. You couldn't, you can't, you don't generally have enough tissue from the biopsy itself. So you have to wait. But I think most of the time, if there's a question about whether they're going to benefit from chemo, we would just have to do a surgery because the chemotherapy benefit in your positive is, like Dr. Bernhardt said, is it's not as dramatic and it's usually just to assist with surgical decisions. Okay, very good. Thank you.